0: morning, Genesis 2 is our passage this morning. Chris uh, assigned to me the entire passage, and I can only think of uh, Jeremiah's metaphor. He said, your words were found and I did eat them, and in this case we're going to have to take a large bite. It's uh, There's just an enormous amount of content in this chapter. We could spend a month of Sundays talking about it, but we have only... Only one. Uh, Martin Luther tells a story on himself about a student who came to his office one day and excitedly announced that he had found the orbits uh, of the planets in the Bible. Uh, To which Luther replied, young man, the Bible is written not to make astronomers out of us, but Christians. Uh, Which is precisely what Paul says in the New Testament. The Bible is given to make us wise unto salvation. I have people ask me from time to time, does the Bible teach seven literal 24-hour days of creation, or is this a description of seven creative epochs? I say, I don't know. Uh, they say, is there a gap between uh, verses 1 and 2, a grammatical gap into which we can put all of the geological ages I say I, I don't know. They say where do the dinosaurs fit in the Genesis? I say I don't know. I used to know. <coughs> <laughs> but I don't know anymore. I don't know. How, I, you know I, I've discovered it's okay not to know. Paul says we know in part. There is a, a Christian agnosticism in the sense that we don't know everything, we don't have to know everything. There can be loose, loose ends. We can be at a, at a loss for words. We don't have to have an answer to everything. That there are some things that really matter, and for those things we have answers. But there's a lot of mystery out there. Uh, Joe Aldrich says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what we need to do when we read the, the book of Genesis. Uh, Cardinal John Newman, the uh, 19th century Theologian at the end of his life was losing his memory. And I, I understand. Carolyn calls it old timer's disease. I've got it. I call it what's, what's his name disease. So I, I can commiserate. I just can't remember things anymore. And that's where he was at the end of his life. But he said, There are two things I remember. Number one, I'm a great sinner. And number two, our Lord Jesus is a great Savior. And I'll tell you, I'm waiting for the day that those are the only two things that I remember. I get rid of a lot of this stuff that's in my head, and I can focus on the things that, that really matter. And I'm a great sinner, and our Lord Jesus is a great Savior. Now, the book of Genesis, as you know, is a book of beginnings. That's what the name signifies. We get our name from the first Greek translation of the New Testament. is written, actually, before Jesus' time. They call this book Genesis, or Beginnings. Origins. Uh, Jews uh, took the first word in the Hebrew text, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. And They call this book Bereshit, in the beginning. It's a book of be- beginnings and origins. But you have to understand that, that the book of Genesis has to do with the origins of our salvation. It's how God brought salvation into the world. It tells us both that we're great sinners and that He's a great, great Savior. It's not a... Cosmology—it is not there to give us a theory of creation. There are all sorts of theories around when Moses wrote this account. Uh, Babylonian myths, Akkadian, uh, Sumerian myths that were theories on how the world came into being. That's not why Moses wrote Genesis. He wrote it to tell us how God began to bring salvation into the world. What you have in Genesis is a seed plot for all the rest of the Bible. Everything you find... In Scripture is here in nascent form, seed form. That's why it's such an important book uh, to grasp. Now, as you know, there are two creation accounts in, in Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the burden of both of those accounts is to establish the majesty and the dignity and the worth of humankind. You and I are special in God's eyes we're unique there's nothing like us on the face of of the earth Genesis 1 establishes that chronologically because we're at the apex of creation we were the last thing to be created God saved the best for last he created and then on the sixth day he looked around and he said now let's do something different let's do something special we're going to make man and here generically he's thinking of man man and woman generic use of that term we're going to make humankind in our image according to our likeness Uh, we wrestle with that idea of image what does it mean in what sense are we made in the image of God do we look like God no he's a spirit He's incorporeal we don't know what he looks like doesn't look like anything he's a spirit what what does that mean? Well, this is an example of how Hebrew poetry helps us. Parallel, there's parallelism in Hebrew poetry. The second line explains the first. Let's make mankind in our, in our image. That is somewhat like us. We are not God's and we never will be, but we are more like God than any other part of God's creation. We're more like God even than the angels were in our original state. See. Boy, I see. That's wonderful to know that you and I are the most godlike beings on the fe- on the face of the earth and we can know God and have a relationship with him because we correspond to him in so many ways. Now Genesis 1 establishes that chronologically. He saved the best for last. Genesis 2 establishes it logically because everything is created for us as John Dunn put it, man is the reason for the world. Carolyn and I were uh, up up at Lake Louise uh, this past week at a Billy Graham uh, evangelism conference. And uh, one afternoon, we, uh, they have about seven or eight meetings a day, and we were surfeited. And we decided we had to take a walk and process some of the information we were getting. So we walked. Some of you have been to Lake Louise, and you know that trail that goes to the south end of the lake. And we walked all the way down there to the end. and it was snowing, it was soft snow drifting down all the time we were, we were walking. We were the only ones out there, and it was quiet, peaceful. We'd look up at those those immense, majestic mountains all around us, and I thought, God did this for me. He did it for you, too, but he did it for me. He did it for us. That's why the world exists. It exists for us. It shows how significant, how important we are. It gives great dignity to us. Now let's look at the text. Verse 4 is where the second account begins. It actually begins with the second half of the verse. The NIV is quite right in placing 2 a with, with the first creation story. The second creation story begins with 2-4-B. 2-4-A goes like this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, period. It's a summary statement of what goes before looks suspiciously like what Near Eastern scholars call a colophon. If you happen to ever see a, a, an ancient tablet at the bottom, there's a little tagline. That's a summary of what's gone before. That's what 4A is. God set out to create the heavens and the earth. He tells the story and he says, this is the, the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, period. Second tablet would start with 2B, when the, 4B. When the Lord made the earth and the heavens, dot, dot, dot. Now, the two things I want you to notice about that superscription. First is the transposition of these words, earth and heaven. All the way through chapter 1 is heavens and earth, heavens and earth, because the focus is on the cosmos, on the universe. But when you get to chapter 2, the focus is on the earth, this, this blue planet that we live on that God made especially just, just for us, the only one that seems to have that delicate color in the universe that's made just for you and me. There's only one other place in the Bible where, where you have that particular order of words. It's in one of the Psalms where the same, same emphasis is made. So the, as though God zooms in on the earth, he's been talking about the universe. Now he, he focuses our thinking on, about what he's doing here on, on the earth. The second thing I want you to notice is the name that's used for God. Throughout chapter 1, it's Elohim, which is the generic name for God. It's his title. Throughout chapter 2 and 3, and by the way, 3 is just a continuation of chapter 2. They belong to the same document. The name in chapter 2 is the name that God has given to himself. Yahweh, Elohim, or Jehovah, if you, if you prefer. We really don't know how the word was pronounced because the Jews never pronounced it and the pronunciation was lost throughout history. Yahweh is probably correct, or, or Yahweh, something like that. It doesn't matter. That's his name. See, the title his title as God is his proper name is Yahweh. It's like my my title is man, and my name is David. Yahweh is the name of Israel's covenant-keeping, loving, compassionate, merciful, kind-hearted God. Boy, that would have landed like a bombshell in the ancient world because for them the gods were mean-spirited and malicious and couldn't be trusted. And one ancient uh, Assyrian myth about the gods getting so miffed because human beings were were so noisy they couldn't get their rest, so they decided to annihilate the whole the whole crowd. See, that's so different because Israel's God cared and loved. He was a compassionate giving, caring God. Now begins the story of the creation of humankind, and the backdrop against which that formation is found is verses five and six. Uh, and no shrub of the field had, had yet appeared on the earth. And, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the, the Lord, Yahweh Elohim, had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Three negatives I want you to focus on here. There, was n- there were no shrubs. There was no man. And there was no rain. Or actually, the, or- the order is shrubs, rain, man. None of these things. So when I, here's a mistake in the Bible. Because... Clearly, according to chapter 1, the bushes and shrubs, plants, trees were all created after man. Now you have man being created first. No, not at all. But Moses uses a different word here for plants than he uses in chapter 1. The word here is not wild plants, it's cultivated plants. The sort of things that it takes a man and woman to, to bring out of the earth. Someone has to till the soil. Someone has to sow the seeds. Someone has to dig the irrigation ditches and and prepare the soil and, and cultivate the land and weed it and, and bring the, the fruit to, uh, bring the, the produce to fruition. There's no man to do that, you see. In other words, there, there, were, there were trees and bushes, but they, they, they were existed out in the wild. And there was some system to irrigate them through regular flooding, inundations of the Nile and the other great rivers of that time, whatever they were. And there was a mist that watered them, but there was no one to dig irrigation ditches, in there, and there was no rain. Someone had to take care of the of the ground. So God created a farmer, created a gardener. Someone to till the soil, someone to sow seeds, someone to cultivate the ground. You probably heard the story of a pastor who was calling on his uh, farmer congregant. And he was leaning on the fence. And the farmer comes by with a tractor, and and. He, and the fo- the preacher says in the words of scripture what hath God wrought as he looked out over this uh, wheat field and his gold, with wheat ready to be harvested and the farmer says yeah but you should have seen it when God had it all by himself and of course that passes by the fact that, that it was God who gave the farmer wisdom, strength, energy and life itself in order to cultivate the field but the point is that God in a very real sense has accommodated himself in that he needed to create someone to bring beauty into the world. He didn't do it all by himself. He needed to create a a gardener. So that's exactly what he did. Verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a a living being, a personality, a soul, a person. Uh, The word that's translated formed here, that verb is the word that... uh, that forms the noun potter it means to throw a pot literally God threw a pot found a little bit of dirt put a little water on it pressed it together and began to like a potter would make a vase began to make a make a man uh, it, it's good to remember the stuff of which we're made not one of us is made of gold dust or super dust we're just made out of dirt it's what I am uh, I've often said to the men on Wednesday morning, you know, if you were to take me and squeeze all the juice out, all the space out from between the molecules in my body, uh, you'd end up with a little ball of heavy mud about the size of a marble and not worth a whole lot more. That's what I am. I'm a dirt bag. <laughs> Paul says we were made of the dust. Dusty is the word he used, koikos, dusty. He says. you probably heard the story about the little boy that had this, the count read to him in Sunday school, went home, and he happened to look under his bed at night, and he saw what my mother used to call dust bunnies, and those little balls of dust under the bed. And Dick went running downstairs to the kitchen, he said, Mom, Mom, there's a man under my bed, but I don't know whether he's coming or going. And that's what we are. We're just dust. Uh, Elihu, Job's. Younger and wiser friend said to him, Job, you and I are just alike. He says, We're both something pinched off of the clay. It's it's a marvelous figure. The potter took a little pinch of clay off the mass and started to sculpt it and made a man. And then he breathed into that man the breath of life and animated him. He became a living person. And we are so arrogant. Men and women say, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, don't mess with me, I'm in control. And every breath we take, every move we make is a gift of God. At the end of our life, we expire. That's an interesting word, expire, means to breathe out. God just takes his breath back and we turn into a little heap of dust. You know, I, 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 I've often thought, if I had the power to make a little man, and I'd go get some clay and I'd shape him. I'd the power to animate him and I'd blow my breath into him. And, and the first thing he did was to open his mouth and sass me. I don't know about you, but I know what I would do. I'd cuff him right across the chops and I'd break him into little pieces and I'd say, I'm going to make something else. But God doesn't do that the day until you expire God loves you He cares for you He longs for you He searches for you, He hungers for you He loves you well, He's also just, He's the judge and at the end there is a judgment, but as long as there's breath in our bodies He longs for us oh, how, how foolish of us in fact that's what Jesus said in the parable of the rich men Barn's full of grain. Now I'm going to kick back and take it easy and live the life of Riley. And retire in style. God says, fool, this night your life is required of you. It's a coronary event, keels over, the breath of God comes out. It's over. Life is just that tenuous and we must never forget it. We live only by the breath of God. It's a gift. Well, let's read on. God now has formed the man, and so he uh, plants a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. There it was separated, that is, in Eden there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, winds through the entire uh, land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, winds through the entire land of Cush. That's Mesopotamian Cush, somewhere over in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. The name of the third river is the Tigris, runs along the east side of Asher, that's Assyria. Uh, the modern-day Iraq, I suppose. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, he, he's created this man, and, and now he creates a garden. Uh, it's a, I want you to understand the, the, the name of the garden is not the Garden of Eden. If you read the text carefully, he planted a garden in the east in Eden. Eden's an old Sumerian word for plains. It refers to the tigris euphrates uh, valley, flat level area, that, that part of the earth. Somewhere out there, this, this garden was planted. Uh, the garden was actually called in the Bible the Garden of Yahweh. In chapter 10, when when, uh, Abraham narrates the story of Sodom, he says, before Sodom's uh, terrible fall, it was like the Garden of Yahweh, reference to this garden that he describes here. And again, in the Psalms, you have the same reference to the Garden of God. And you'll notice there were trees there in the garden. He planted uh, ornamentals and he planted uh, uh, trees, that, would, that things that were good to eat. And other trees in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Now, I'm going to leave the trees for Chris to try to explain next week. But I just want to say one thing. You've got to remember that Adam was a child. He had only been born for a few hours, perhaps, when I mean, this was done. Um, had a perfect body, unfallen, sinless body, and a great mind. I'm sure he, you know, 300 intelligence, photographic memory, could learn anything, could forget nothing. But he was a child, and you treat, you teach a child through simple stories. See spot, see spot, run. That's the way you teach children. That's what God was doing with his trees. These trees weren't magic. There's no magic in the Bible. There were symbols. I think there were literal trees <coughs> in the garden, but they were symbolic of some greater truth. See, I think one day God took Adam over, to the, showed him around the garden, showed him how beautiful it was, and he takes him to the middle of the garden, <coughs> the focus of all of his attention. He says, okay, see that tree? That's the tree of life. And here's what I want you to learn from that tree. You're utterly dependent upon me for life. Every breath you take, every move you make, you make comes from me. Now, don't ever forget that. You are not the author of life. I am. Then he takes him over to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, now I want you to know good and evil. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, your senses will be exercised someday to know good and evil. But I'll tell you what's good and I'll tell you what's bad. That you don't make up those rules yourself. I'll tell you. It's my word. It'll make it clear what you're to love and what you're to hate. He's like teaching a child. You say to a child, now look, Billy. You don't take a baseball bat to John's head just because he stole your baseballs. We were always teaching them moral lessons. And that's what God wanted to do. He wanted to teach Adam what was right and what was wrong, and he did not want Adam to go out on his own and try to learn that apart from God. And then there was the river. Oh, I should say too, what God did was he drew a line in the sand here, and he said, All right, and this is what the trees represent. There's no the trees weren't toxic. It was not eating the tree that would, uh, that would kill them. Uh, again, it's, there's a lesson that God wanted Adam to learn. He drew a line in the sand and he said, All right, Adam, this is what the trees represent. I'm God and you're man. I'm the creator and you're the created. Now, don't ever forget that. Right? You'll never be God, no matter how, you, how, how long you try. You've, you're more like God than any other part of my creation. But don't try to be God. You see, now that's exactly what Satan tried to get uh, Eve to do. To believe that she could be just like God, knowing good and evil. It didn't need God to tell her what was right and what was wrong. And then there are these rivers, two of which we can identify, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the others we can't. The topography of the entire earth was radically changed as a result of the flood, and we can't really trace any of these. But if you look carefully at the text, you, 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 in the way most texts translate it, you have an impossible river with a stream flowing that divides into, into four tributaries. Streams don't, uh, they don't do that. They start with tributaries and they become one main stream. The point of this story is that in the middle of the garden, there was this prodigious fountain. Water bubbled up out of it. The- I'm assured that I'm assured that there'll be no sound systems in heaven <laughs> where was I fountain have you ever been to see Big Spring over near Yellowstone This yes, fountain probably ten times hundred times greater just bubbled up out of the ground and then flowed in four directions perhaps two rivers down toward the Persian Gulf and one up toward the Black Sea one toward the Caspian Sea but I don't know we don't know what the topography was like but that's the picture See, and if you lived in the ancient Near East, you'd understand what a marvelous thing this was to have that much water available to irrigate with because water was very, very scarce. This great picture of this, this garden with all these flowers and trees and birds and animals and, 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 and this fountain that flowed out of the center of the garden. And, 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 and God takes the man into the garden and he says, Saul, for you, I made this for you. For your del- it's for your discipline. You need some things to learn, but it's also for your delight. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of, uh, in Eden to work it and, and take care of it. You ever been to Birch Hart Gardens up in Victoria, uh, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island? It's an incredible place, beautiful spot. And there a couple of times. They just loved to walk through that garden and smell the aromas. all started back in 1903 when the Burchards, Burchards started Portland Cement. They very wealthy, and they had this large 150-acre estate. Right in the middle of it was a worked-out quarry. It was just ugly as all get-out, so they began to beautify it. They, they brought trees, exotics, gardeners. They worked for years to make this uh, beautiful garden. Well, in a sense, that's what the garden in Eden was. It was God's Burchard Garden. Built this beautiful place, and he took Adam into it, and they would walk through the garden, and God would show him various aspects of the garden. And then he would say, I want you to learn from this model and to take this beauty out into the world. See, that was man's task, was to beautify the universe. And to use this garden as an example, he would learn to work with his hands. He'd learn to irrigate. He'd learn to fertilize the soil and, 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 and produce the crops. And then once he had learned, he'd go into the world and bring beauty into the rest of the world and perhaps into the, the rest of the, uh, of the universe. I want to say two things. Number one, work is not a product of the fall. The fall made work irksome and tiresome. By the sweat of your brow, you earn your, your bread. But work came before the fall. Work is good. There's dignity in work. Uh, if you can't work, that's one thing. If you won't work, go get a job. It's very important that you do so. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul says to the church, if people won't work, don't feed them. No work, no food. No food. They ought to put that, they ought to hang it on a plaque in the the health and welfare office. Some people can't work. I understand that. But if you can work, go get a job. Great dignity, value, in work. The other thing I want to say is that, that the reason we work is to bring beauty into the world. Have you ever thought of your vocation that way? By the way, vocation is a good term. It actually is a Latin term that means call, your call, whatever it is. It is a call to bring beauty into the world. To beautify your yard, to beautify your home, to beautify your your place of business, to bring be- beauty into other people's lives as you work on whatever gadget or gizmo you, you make or sell. The, the purpose of everything is to bring beauty into the world. But I think this is primarily a metaphor for something that's even more significant. I think. That we were intended to bring the beauty of holiness into the world. That's our real work. You may be an engineer. You may be a librarian. You may be a school teacher. Maybe a janitor. That's that's one vocation. But your primary call, your primary vocation is to bring beauty. The whole beautiness of holy holiness into others. To introduce them to our loving Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To bring them into relationship to him. Or are those that already belong to him, to, to push them closer to him and help them become more like our Lord Jesus. That's your task. Did you ever think about life that way? You know, in a sense, this is the garden. and we, we read and we see what God has in mind and the beauty he wants to bring into lives. And we, we take the beauty we see here out into the world and, and we offer it to others. Uh, Carolyn, my wife Carolyn, gave me the most wonderful illustration of this. Uh, On our flight back from Calgary, we were on one leg of a flight from Calgary to San Jose to, uh, pardon me, to to Salt Lake to Boise. Why why you have to fly that way, I don't know, but that's the way they fly it. We were jammed into the 727, just packed in there like sardines. I was sitting next to the aisle because I have a lame knee and I have to stick my leg out in the aisle. Carol was sitting in between, squeezed in between me and a big uh, Chinese fellow sitting by the window, young fellow. And as soon as the plane took off, I stuck my nose in a book, and she started chatting with this uh, with this man next to her. It would, in a nutshell, tells you what, it, what we're like. And, uh, she, you know, she was talking away. And went, after a while, she found out he was a mining engineer. flying back from Calgary. and had been gone from his family for three months, and he was headed back to Salt Lake. Pretty soon, he had their wallets out, and they were swapping pictures of children and grandchildren and all. And Carolyn was jabbering away. And... <clears throat> I was listening in on the conversation and after a while she said, tell me, what's your religious background? He said, I don't have one. She said, none at all? No. I, I, I'm i from communist China. I don't know anything about God. I've never been to church in my life. I've never read the Bible. I don't know anything. And so they they started talking and after a few minutes he, he turned to her, what's your religious background? And she began to tell her. Tell me about the Lord Jesus and what he had done in her life, and he listened so attentively he had never heard the gospel in his entire life. What was she doing? She was bringing beauty into his life now, i he didn't receive the Lord she was just sowing that's all that's first part you know you got to cultivate sow but she was bringing beauty into his life now, Carolyn, if you have ever walked into her home, you know what a what a what a lovely place it is. I love to go home because it's so restful. And she's done a great job with the finances she had in making our home beauty, beautiful. But that that's not her real calling. Her real call is to bring the beauty of holiness into people's lives. And that's your call. And mine as well. Verse 18. The Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone. The interesting thing to me about that verse is the context. All through chapter one, God creates and says, it's good, creates, it's good, creates, it's good. Now he says something's not good. God went into the garden one day and found Adam leaning on his ditching tool. So, a wistful look in his eyes, what's the matter? And so watching the Canadian geese pair off and the other animals beginning to pair off. And kind of aching in his heart. He didn't know what was wrong, but so God said, I'll tell you what's wrong. You're lonely. Loneliness terrible terrible. A lot of people in this world are lonely. God knew without even asking what was wrong. Not good, he said, for you to be alone. I'm going to make you a helper that's suitable for you. The word helper is a strong word. It's not a wimpy word. It's used of God a number of times in the Old Testament. He is our help. It's the basis of Ezra's name. Ezra's name means Yahweh helps. The basis of Azariah's name which is just another... Uh, a lengthened way of saying God is God is help. It's, it's a great word. It's not a gopher. It's a strong word. Uh, help meet is the way the King James uh, put it, and that's come over into English as a as a as a noun. Help meet is your help mate. We sometimes say is your wife, but meet's not a noun. It's actually an adjective. Uh, it means suitable, or equivalent, or complementary. Uh, in one one uh, era of, of Hebrew, Mishneh Hebrew, it means equality, someone equal to you. It actually means someone over against you. That's the literal meaning of the word, not against in the sense of opposing, but an alter ego, one just like you, a mate in, that, in the Aussie sense of that word, mate, a sidekick, uh, a friend. Someone who moves alongside to help you bring bring beauty in, into the world. Uh, the NIV translates uh, a helper who is suitable. That's not, that's not bad, as long as you understand that it also has the idea of equality in it. And then, again, given Adam's uh, childlike uh, being, he gives him an object lesson. The Lord, Verse 19, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the earth. By the way, it's a... Very good translation of that verb because uh, some of the other translations say he formed, which gives the impression that the animals came after man, which would throw this account in direct conflict with with chapter 1. But had formed is, is the proper way to understand it. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He then at this time brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever. The man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Object lesson. Brought all the animals by. I suppose he started with the yard bark and worked his way through the zebra. And Adam gave them names that corresponded to him. That's actually a call to them is, is the way the text puts it. call to them. Gave them names that represented the relationship that they would obtain to him. Uh, Perhaps call this one burden bearer and this one wool giver or something like that. Gave them names that showed how they corresponded to him, how they might help him. But the text is very clear and Adam's heart corroborated that there was no helper suitable for him. No other animal. You now, people get attached to their dogs, and I understand we've got a great dog, but that's not a helper suitable. There's got to be something more. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Uh, I suppose he, he did so because Adam might be tempted to second guess God, look over his shoulder, and say, Well, you need to change that. or... And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Ah, it's so great. A rib. Can you believe that? A rib. According to Jewish tradition, it was the 13th rib on the right side, right up here by the heart. I heard a story once about Adam coming in real early in the morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning. Eve awakened, and she says, where have you been? "On so, the back 40 irrigating. It's awfully late. Well, a lot to do. So, Are you sure that's what you re-? Yeah, Yeah, there's nobody else around. How, you know, how could I be doing anything but working in the field? So he goes to sleep. In the middle of the night, he feels her fingers on his side, and she's counting his ribs. Then there's only one. Hey, only one. Matthew Henry, in his quaint way, said the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. So Adam goes to sleep, lonely as all get out, and he wakes up, and God says, "Do I have something for you?" And Adam w- uh, looks, and he and he sees the woman, and he waxes rhapsodic. This is the this is the first love poem in the Bible. I mean, he fair goes out of his gourd. Shut, Sam. He's all right. That's what I've been looking for. Terrific. Totally awesome, he says. That's literal. That's that's what the Hebrew says. He says, Zot. It's a strong uh, exclamation. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Uh, I I don't think Adam spoke Hebrew. I don't know what language he spoke. But he was playing on the word for man. And Moses tries to duplicate it here. with the closest Hebrew word for, for man it sounds like, woman well, ish is the word for man, he uses ishah, which really comes from another root, but it's very close, like our word man and woman. Woman, by the way, comes from wolf man." did you know that? Uh, not W-O-L-F, but W-O-O-F, wolf man, man who weaves. But it's very close, it expresses the idea of, of the complementary nature of, of the sexes, man, woman, ish, ishah. Guys, every time our wives walk in the door, we ought, to, we ought to respond that way. Wow, this is totally awesome. Out of sight. Fantastic. This is the gift that God has, has given to me. And that's why Moses says, and I think this is his commentary. He breaks into the story at this point to make his own summary. For this reason, a man will leave his mother, his father and mother. The NIV says, be united. That's way too, too weak. I like the Hebrew, I mean, the, the, the old English, the old uh, authorized version, cleave, stick to like glue, adhere, cleave to your wife, and they'll become one flesh. I married a uh, uh, young philosophy student at Stanford one time, and I expected him to say something really profound when the time came for his vows, and he looked at his wife Jody, and he said, Jody, I just want to say one thing, I'll never split. And and that needs to be what's in our hearts. I'll never, never split. Marriage is for life. The man and his woman were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame because there was no sin, therefore no guilty conscience. Uh, F.B. Meyer says in his quaint way, no shame on their faces even though they had no clothes on their backs. Because they weren't conscious of themselves. There's no fear. They can be absolutely transparent and honest with one another. I want to say three things about this account. I need to wrap it up quickly here. One thing I want to say is sex in marriage is good. Man, do we need to get that one back from the world? They didn't invent it. God did. Like C.S. Lewis said, if, if we think that there's something... Evil and ugly about sex, the Bible clears that up right away, chapter two. The, the phrase "one flesh refers to sexual intercourse. Paul makes that very clear. He uses that way in, it that way in First Corinthians six. So sex is okay within marriage. Sex is like a, like a fire. It destroys unless it's contained. It needs to be contained in the, in, in the bonds of marriage terribly destructive force outside of marriage, but within marriage it is also good. Secondly, marriage is for life. God's intention is that there be one man, one woman together for life. You remember the story of the Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, You know, can we divorce our wife for any cause? Jesus said in effect, look, we're not going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about staying married. And he quotes this passage a man shall leave mother and father and cleave to his wife and he shall become one flesh. I'm, I've been married for 40 years to one woman. I am so glad I stuck it out. It, 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 it hasn't been easy. I have to say I'm probably the more difficult one in the in the combination, but it has not been easy. But we've stuck it out. Carol said one day, "We've been happily married for 39 years." I said, oh, "Dear, it's been 40." She said, "Yeah, I know." <clears throat> We've had our ups and downs. We've had to get help at times. But we didn't give up. We didn't give up. Don't give up. If you need help, go get it. Talk to a a professional counselor or someone whose marriage you respect or someone who doesn't have to be a professional, someone who's professionally trained. It can be someone who who thinks deeply about Scripture and who thinks deeply about life. and Go and get help. But don't give up. Uh, When when we were at... uh, the Graham Conference, there was a wonderful young, well, it wasn't young, my British expositor. He's the successor of John R. W. Stott at All Souls Church in London, Bishop Bowen. And he told of a friend of mine who'd written a poem. It goes like this go on, 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 go on. Terrible poetry. Great theology. Don't quit. Don't give up. Get help if you need to. But it's worthwhile to stay with it until death separates you. Third thing I want to say is that marriage is a partnership. Uh, both of us together are called to bring beauty into the world. It's so sad when we break our marriages into my job and your job. My job is to mind the story. Yours is to mind the kids. Either man or woman, that says that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're a partnership. You know, it may be that your job is to go out and work in the, in the workforce and your partner's job is to stay home and take care of the kids. We've made that division of labor, but there shouldn't be any division of of heart. You know, this is our job out there. These are our children. We share this together. We work together to bring beauty into the lives of our children, to bring beauty into the lives of our colleagues. That, that, that's that's what it means to have a helper who's, who's suitable for you. Now, uh, let me suggest three things. Or let me suggest one thing that, that, that works its way out in three things. Years ago, uh, I, I saw some statistics from a Catholic diocese in, uh, in Philadelphia. And they did a study of uh, marriages that had held together for years. And they discovered that that the couples that did these three things in their home rarely ever divorced. Number one, well, they would they would take some time to spend together. Perhaps in the morning before the kids get up, or before the, you go off to work. Perhaps you have to get up 15 minutes early to do this. But you spend 15 minutes together and you do three things. You share what's going to happen through the day. You talk about your, your concerns. You talk about your joys, the landmines you, you see ahead. Just five minutes, that's all, to share what's going on through your day. Five minutes to read the Word and talk about how it applies to what's happening. You don't have to have a Bible study. It's not the purpose of it. Just read it and ask how it applies. And then third, five minutes to pray for one another. And they said, people that did those things rarely, if ever, divorced. Now, I don't know about the statistics, but when I saw that, it stirred my heart to do that with Carolyn. And what I would encourage you to do in terms of, of getting together and becoming a partnership is to do that, to take that time, whatever, whatever it requires. Uh, it may, may demand some sacrifice on your part. Uh, after you've had breakfast together, or before you fix breakfast, or whenever, spend a few minutes talking about what your day looks like, the, the things you fear, the things that you rejoice over, what you anticipate happening, both man and woman, and then, and then read something of the Word and see how it fits, and then pray for one another. And then I would encourage you through the day to just check up. Call in. You know your husband has a difficult meeting at 2. You pray for him. And then you call him at 3 and say, how'd it go? Right? Or if you know that the afternoons are difficult for your your spouse. And, uh, you know the, the kids are wild and unruly at that time. To call home and say, how's it going? And then to, to pray for that person. That's a very small thing. See, but that's what it means to make it our job to bring beauty into the world rather than my job and and your job. Let me say something to those of you that are divorced or separated or widowed or never been married, you have a hard marriage and and no togetherness. I realize that as we've talked about these things, your heart must be aching. I understand. I want to say this. If you don't have a partner, a human partner, God is your partner. That's not just theory. That is true. You can talk to any number of men and women sitting here uh, who have lost husbands through divorce, separation, and death, and they'll tell you that God genuinely becomes your husband or your wife or whatever you need. And he's your partner. Secondly, if you are now single, you have the gift of being single and celibate. Now, Jesus said there are some who are called to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He didn't mean that literally. He meant that they forego marriage in order to serve better. And Paul even talks about that, that. In some instances, it's actually better to be unmarried because you have more time to invest in the kingdom of God. You should not feel sorry for yourself if you're single. That is a call. And if you are single, God has given you the gift of celibacy. People ask me, Do I have the gift of celibacy? I say, are are you single? Yes. Then you have the gift of celibacy. God has given it to you. Your sufficiency is not of yourselves. It is of God who has qualified you. That's where you get your your strength and your ability to to go on. The third thing I'd say is, even if you don't have an earthly partner, with God as your partner, you can invest yourself in bringing beauty into your world. And you can do it wonderfully well. I read a story one time about a, a woman in a Hindu village who was bereaved of her husband, and she was feeling sorry for herself, sitting in her hut, weeping. And uh, she, a holy man came to see her and said, All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through the village, and I want you to borrow a cup of sugar from the pers- first person you find who has no trouble. And so she went through the village, and she, of course she couldn't find anybody that had no trouble, so she began to invest herself and. In, in ministering to these people. You see, here again is that odd and old paradox that you find yourself by losing yourself. So for goodness sake, don't feel sorry for yourself if you're single. Get about the business of bringing beauty into people's lives. Count upon God to be your partner, your strength, your helper that's suitable for you, and invest yourself in other people's lives. And you will discover enormous satisfaction in that. Now, I want to close by having you uh, look at the prayer that's on the front of the bullet, if you take that out. Years ago, Alice George gave me this poem, and I tacked it up over my, my desk, and I changed the words uh, somewhat to make it a little more applicable to me, and, and uh, try to pray this prayer every morning. And I want us to pray this prayer together, by way of conclusion, if you will. Let's, I know you have to keep your eyes on the page, but Lift your heart to the Lord and say this to him. Will you pray with me? All through this day, Lord, let me touch as many lives as possible for you. And by your Holy Spirit, beautify each life I touch. Whether by the words I speak, the prayers I breathe, the letters I write, or the life I live.